<clears throat> one, two, one, two. This is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. Uh, when I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take 12. Take Yes, not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me, and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is one of Canada's most successful. Uh, actually, you know what? Scratch that. Never mind the Canada part. Take that out. Uh, he is one of the most successful songwriters of his era. Dan Hill is my guest. His soft rock anthem, 1977's Sometimes When We Touch, a global million seller. It's been in more movies and television shows than he could count. It's been covered by Tina Turner, Bonnie Tyler, Rod Stewart. Uh, Tammy Wynette and Mark Gray performed the song as a duet that was a hit. Uh, The list goes on. It has been covered many, many times. The official video of the song on YouTube has been played over 49 million times. Dan is a Grammy Award winner, nominated for a second Grammy. He's won five Juno Awards, and most recently he was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Quite a career in the music biz. And he's also uh, a writer. Uh, He has a new book coming out in the fall of 2023. And, oh yes, Dan Hill's also still a working musician. He's out playing shows all over the place. Uh, The best place to go to to find out where Dan is playing and what he's up to is danhill.com. Just how it sounds. D-A-N-H-I-L-L.com. The website for this podcast is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 12th episode of Series 3. You can find all of the episodes from this series, as well as all the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2, at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. So this is part one of a special two-part episode where I've had Dan select some of his favorite tracks from the Beatles' amazing 1968 White Album. So uh, a bit of a hybrid episode here. We're not going to go through every single track on the White Album, uh, just some highlights that Dan has picked out, 10 or 11 tracks that we're going to talk about. So I'm sat here with Dan in the front room of his house. I can see a Grammy Award sitting over there. Uh, There are more gold records on the walls than I could count on both hands. And right in front of me, there is a beautiful baby grand piano uh, sitting uh, right across. I could almost reach out and touch it. Uh, Dan, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for opening up your home. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Pleasure. Absolutely. My favorite topic. In an email correspondence that we had before you know, getting all this started, you described yourself as a kid who was, and I'm, I'm quoting here from your email, I was only into black jazz music and studying classical guitar and knew nothing about pop rock and roll music until seeing the Beatles. They were my entrance into rock and roll. Purchased a Beatles songbook claiming to include every song the Beatles had written, taught myself how to read the chord charts, and then, bam, I was forever in rock and roll. It was that simple? It was, really. You know, I, uh, it was actually 1964 that the Beatles played Ed Sullivan. And I remember watching with my parents, who, of course, hated them and disparaged them, <laughs> which made me love them even more. And, 
yeah, I, I was just, uh, you know, I loved the, the music that my parents played, which was black jazz, and the one exception was uh, Frank Sinatra. So I didn't know anything about that kind of music, and it was like so, a lightning rod went off in my heart. So uh, because I'd played classical guitar for so long, it, it was very easy for me then to adjust to playing pop music. But back then, you know, a, a really big way of selling music was, happened to be sheet music. Unfortunately, not so much now. You know, that was... So I still remember saving all my money and buying that, that first Beatles book and learning how to play their songs. So seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, which for so many people in North America, that was, you know, that was the moment. Uh, I'll test your memory here. What do you remember about it? Do you remember seeing them on TV? Do you remember that night in the house? Yeah, I remember uh, the, the the screaming of the girls. I'd never, of course, seen anything like that. That that I found kind of crazy. I remember thinking that their haircuts were were quite uh, wild. You know, when you think about it now, if you look at the haircuts, they're not wild. But nineteen sixty four, it seemed like a, a radical look for me. And the other thing I remember was that. We had all been traumatized by the Kennedy assassination in 63, and this was the first real alight. This was the first thing that happened that was, I think it was a very important part of how we recovered from the trauma of, the, of what was going on in America for the Beatles uh, to kind of burst onto the scene. That gave us some, some real joy. Well, this is the boring part for you, but I'd like to just give a little bit of context as to what was going on before we get into the album. And uh, the White Album is such a complex piece, a double album, and you've chosen uh, 11 great tracks that we'll go through, and I'm sure we can stumble onto the others as well. But uh, just the Beatles entered 1968, the year they recorded this, off the back of one of their first ever artistic failures, or at least as far as most people were concerned, and that was the Magical Mystery Tour movie. Mm -hmm. uh, they started shooting the movie in early September, shot the bulk of it by the end of that month. A few additional scenes were shot at the end of October. Uh, concurrent with that, they recorded music for the film. Film comes out on BBC TV on Boxing Day 1967 in, uh, in glorious black and white at the time. <laughs> Uh, 25 million people watch it, uh, and it was roundly slated by the British press. You know, they didn't get it. Uh, it. It was such a big thing that Paul McCartney had to go on the David Frost show the following day, the 27th, to answer questions about the lambasting that British TV critics had given the Beatles over the project. Now, that said... We know the music was brilliant, right? The music for the film was released in the UK uh, on a double EP, uh, released in Canada and the US on an album, and it was a big, big album. And some big singles, uh, estimated global sales, 10.6 million. So despite the, the movie not working, uh, certainly the music did. Uh, still, though, 1967 was an amazing year for them. That was the Sgt. Pepper's year, Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, All You Need Is Love, Hello, Goodbye, I Am the Walrus the whole bit. So we get into 1968, and you might well wonder, what next? Well, for a start, they decide to start their own record label and publishing company and electronics company and clothing retailer, Apple, was the name of that company. And in January 1968, Beatles Limited officially became Apple Corps. In February of 68, the Beatles traveled to Rishikesh, India to take part in a meditation course with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi at his retreat. George and Patty Harrison, her sister Jenny, John and Cynthia Lennon, they all come in in February. Paul McCartney and his girlfriend Jane Asher, Ringo and his wife Maureen, uh, Donovan was there, Mike Love of the Beach Boys, Mia Farrow, and her sister Prudence uh, was also there. So Ringo ends up leaving first. Uh, McCartney leaves a little while afterwards. George and John sort of hang in there. They come back from there, and towards the end of May, the four gather at Kinfons, which was George, Har George Harrison's Esher bungalow, and they record demo versions of all of the compositions that they wrote. They had a trove of over 30 songs that they had written while they were at this retreat. So they had all these songs, they'd rehearse them, and there were plans for the Beatles' first ever double album. So it was on May 30th, 1968, they walk into EMI Studio in London to start work on what would become the White Album. 
The first album, first song in the album they started to work on was Revolution, appearing on the album as Revolution One, the slow version. And then they laid down other material and they were off to the races. The album comes out, it's their ninth studio album, their only double album, and it was released on the 22nd of November in the UK, 1968, five years to the day that they had released their second album with the Beatles. So just think about the artistic change from Yeah, Yeah, Yeah with the Beatles. Five years later, they have this complex, rich tapestry of an album. That blows my mind. As a musician, it's got to raise your eyebrows too, I would think. Well, the growth, uh, the artistic growth is stunning. And and that, um, you know, that juxtaposed with the enormous uh, amount of stress that was on them because they were without a doubt the biggest band in the world so they were very very busy you know they were still they, they'd stopped touring maybe a little while ago but they they toured all over the world starting in 60 well they were playing courts Germany back in 62 so what's really amazing is with all the, the stresses and the time consumption of being the biggest band in the world they were still able to to write such exquisite songs and, and show such enormous growth well, and that's interesting because I know, uh, having read about how your life changed, and we'll talk about the song later sometimes when we touch, but I mean, you talked about playing 300 nights a year on the road. So in your world at that time, did you just have to put artistic growth kind of on hold because you were you were playing shows, you were on the treadmill? Well, I was, you know, um, I was very, very busy. I, you know, I do believe it, that uh, the the world of rock and roll is somewhat of a young man's game. There's no way I could replicate even in my 40s what I was doing in my 20s. That would be the same with most acts, including the Beatles. So the only way I could have pulled off, you know, made 200 to 300 shows a year, plus write all my own songs, record and release an album, because I think I put out six albums in six years straight. Uh, you'd have to have enormous stamina, and that was something I could have only done in, in my teens and 20s. Uh, well, you had a workload uh, for those years similar to the Beatles, right? You're out touring and you're releasing new stuff. Uh, what a time. Uh, the album comes out, the White Album, debuts at number one in the UK chart, not a surprise. Number one for eight weeks, including seven straight weeks, on the UK chart for a total of 24 weeks. In the US, its chart debut is at number 11, then it goes up to two, finally tops the charts, third week of release, spends nine weeks in top spot, a total of 155 weeks in the Billboard 200. Uh, Likewise in Canada, RPM chart comes out at number 11, works its way up to number one, uh, and it remains the number one album until March 17th when it was replaced by the Beatles' Yellow Submarine album. I see. So Amazing. <laughs> a bit of trivia. Uh, Abbey Road also came out later in 1969 and was number one for nine weeks. So in 1969, in Canada, the Beatles had the number one album on the RPM chart for 21 of the 52 weeks of the amazing. year. Not bad. It's Not pretty bad. amazing. Yeah. Uh, as per chartmasters.org, global sales of the White Album, uh, as we sit here today, over 20 million. Uh, that's global physical sales, putting it at uh, number three in the Beatles' original catalog behind Sgt. Pepper's at number two and ahead of uh, Rubber Soul, which is at number four. Uh, it's been streamed on Spotify 170 million times. The most streamed track on the album. You want to take a guess? Okay, uh, let me see now. I would guess maybe um, that's a really hard one. Perhaps back in the USSR, perhaps uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. While My Guitar Gently Weeps, second, number one, Blackbird. Okay, that doesn't surprise me, actually. There's so many good ones on there. All right, Dan, so uh, let us tear into this album and uh, the the sweet 11 cuts that you have picked, a stroll down musical memory lane for you. I hope you enjoy it. And it's side one, cut one. We put the needle down, and it is the opening track back in the USSR. Well, 
everybody knows that there was this amazing rivalry between the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And so what was happening is one group would make an iconic album and then Brian Wilson would react to the Beatles. For example, Rubber Soul, when Brian Wilson heard that, he was freaked out, floored, and, uh, and felt very, very inadequate. So he turned around and put, wrote Pet Sounds, which is now arguably one of the greatest albums of all time. So then the Beatles heard Pet Sounds, and then they turned around and wrote and recorded Sgt. Pepper's. So I'm saying this because back in the USSR was, was motivated along to a great degree to, by, uh, I believe it was uh, California Girls, right? And so, but the interesting thing is when you, when you look at those two tracks, one against the other, what happens is I, I give the Beatles the edge because there was such grit and rawness and, and edge to back in the USSR. And it was such a winning record and song that it never even occurred to me at the time that there was some kind of a rivalry connected to the Beach Boys song it was just a, a very interesting song also very ironic you know the things that they're saying about the USSR because it was antithetical to our beliefs of that country at the time at the peak of the cold war so um I just how could you not love that song on first listen and the their grooves can't be underestimated. The Beatles' sense of rhythm was extraordinary. You know what surprised me on this one is Paul McCartney plays the drums. That I did not know. Yeah. he. Uh, they'd had a, a, a fight early in the sessions, and McCartney, who I guess, I've never met the man, but apparently is a bit of a perfectionist, and he'd been talking to Ringo about how he wanted a drum fill done, mm-hmm. and Ringo had enough. <laughs> And he said, see you later. Right. <laughs> and he left. And uh, so McCartney, pretty talented drummer in his own right, jumped on and played the drums for this track as well as for Dear Prudence. I did not know that either. Yeah. Uh, I didn't either until I started researching it. Um, it's, it's, uh, and then also, I guess because McCartney couldn't, be one Ringo. Uh, some of the uh, John Lennon and George Harrison also helped overdub some of the other percussion on it. I see, I uh, see. to give it the real song. But it, I mean, a great opening track for an album. It's amazing, you know. And uh, they also wrote extraordinary bridges, or in in the Beatles' case, middle eight. So bridge being the part of the song. You know, there's usually two verses, two choruses, and then there's kind of like a musical lyrical left turn, which is the bridge. For example, in Lightfoot's If You Could Read My Mind, it goes, you know, I don't know where the feeling's gone. So they were the masters of the bridge. And check out the bridge in, back in the USSR. Just when you think you've heard everything you need to hear, they take this unbelievable left turn, which is as great as the rest of the song. Well, the Julie girls really knock me out. So when you're listening to a song like that, I love talking to to musicians because, uh, you know, I'm just a music lover, not a musician. Uh, And uh, they hear things that I don't hear. So, for example, you just pointed out something there about the bridge and the turn that it takes. When you listen to a song, is that how you just by default listen to it? What are they doing here? Where's it going? Is that is that where uh, your mind goes? I try first to uh, not do that. I try to just listen as all of us listen, kind of with our hearts. I'm pretty good at just letting the song hit me, you know, viscerally, emotionally, uh, and then maybe um, at some point, you know, I kind of kind of look at how often when I'm learning how to play the song. I was listening to a song. It's a whole different experience than actually, you know, picking up your guitar or going to your piano and trying to replicate the song. Um, and again, a lot of my guitar playing got better based on trying to play these Beatles songs because they're not easy songs to play. They were easy songs to play back in the She Loves You period, as you kind of alluded to earlier in this interview. Uh, so once I'm starting to play the song on guitar, then I'm getting a better idea of how, how brilliant their, the Beatles song structures were. Uh, the uh, the recording took uh, a couple of days uh, on the first takes. Uh, McCartney played guitar. Harrison was on the snare drum. 
Uh, on later takes, McCartney switched to piano, Lennon strum chords on a bass guitar, and they taped five tracks, uh, five runs at it, the last of which was deemed to be the best. And then the next day, they added some more drums, bass, uh, lead guitar tracks, a piano part, lead vocals, and McCartney uh, with backing vocals, he and Lennon and Harrison doing those uh, great Beach Boy impersonations. Yeah, and that, again, that really, really happens in the bridge. You know, that's when they really get into the Beach Boys, almost like a Beach Boys parody. Uh, so let's go on to uh, the next track you're going to talk about. Uh, it goes, it segues into Dear Prudence. Okay. Love that song uh, with the, the guitar picking. Then Glass Onion goes into that. The, uh, I mean, this, the, the first three tracks on that album, just like, wow. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, it just runs you over. And then we come to the next song you wanted to talk about. Um, it's a Paul McCartney right? Pure McCartney, Obladi Oblada. You know, one of the great uh, lessons to inculcate when you're writing songs is that the the sound of the words are even more important than the meaning. And, the, you know, so we really, when we're listening to a great song, you know, it's the sound of certain words that will resonate with us. You know, especially men. They've done these studies. Apparently women on first listen are more lyric aware than men. Men aren't as lyric aware on first listen. So they're responding to the sound, the overall sound. So they're responding to the sound of the words. And obla di, obla da is a perfect example of that because essentially that's a nonsense phrase. But because it's, it's, it's buoyed by such ph uh, phenomenal music, you know, it makes all the sense of the world. Like another example would be, say, Sting's da-do-do-do-da-da-da-da. You know, so the Beatles really show us in that song, A, how important the sounds of the words are. And again, their sense of groove, you know, is uh, is phenomenal. So there's such a there's such a rhythm to that song, and the words are just the sounds of them are just so totally captivating. Uh, McCartney got the inspiration from a guy named Jimmy Scott, who was a Nigerian conga player who we used to meet around the clubs in London, uh, and he had a few expressions of, uh, according to McCartney, one of which was "Obladi Oblada, life goes on, bra." Ah, and, I see. I, wow, I did not know that. That's great. And he's, McCartney's uh, recalling it later said, I used to love that expression. He sounded like a philosopher to me. Uh, he was a great guy anyway. And I said to him, I really like that expression. I'm thinking of using it. Uh, and then years later, I sent him a check in recognition of that fact uh, because though I had written the whole song uh, and he didn't help me, it was certainly his expression that I, that I grabbed and put into the song. Um, here's a funny one. Uh, like, the band to me, when... I listen to it. They sound like they're really into it and really engaged. And John Lennon then, many years later, said, uh, he described the song in an interview. He said, Obla di obla da, that song is Paul's granny shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, Lennon could be very, very disparaging. Uh, you know, uh, not, not just to McCartney, but his put downs were kind of legendary and interestingly enough McCartney never went back you know, McCartney never answered Lennon's put downs with his own put downs of of, of Lennon he was very gracious that way but um, you know he used to say terrible things about all sorts of people he, he once said that you know uh, McCartney's songs were, were so uh, maudlin that he sounded like John Denver so he was he was destroying McCartney and John Denver in the same <laughs> sentence he didn't want to be on the receiving end of a John Lennon insult. And, and the, the piano bit at the beginning apparently was the sort of capsulization of Lennon's frustration at recording the song over and over and over. They worked on it a long time, according to everything I read, and he just sat down and he played this part in the piano uh, that faster than the tempo they'd okay. been rehearsing the song. And... <laughs> And it was one of those happenstance where they went, that's it. Well, uh, another thing that this, this points to, Paul, is uh, one of the reasons they were such uh, unparalleled songwriters is because they were such killer musicians. 
you know, it's very, very hard to be able to write complete songs if you can't play an instrument. And in the case of Lennon McCartney, they could play every instrument, you know. And so I think we forget sometimes uh, just what astonishing musicians the four of them were. And that's one of the reasons why, because their songs are so iconic, we sometimes forget about how amazing the performances are, you know, but you, you may notice that there's never really been a cover of a Beatles song that was better than the original version that the Beatles made. Yeah, no, you're you're right on there. Have, have you ever, uh, I mean, you haven't recorded any Beatles covers, but do you just, and do you do you have fun and fiddle around and play sure, the songs? Sure, I do. I, yeah, I kind of, I don't want to mention any songs now because I want to kind of refer to them when we're going through the songs, but as I said earlier, basically, you know, learning how to play these Beatles songs was probably the best. Uh, it was kind of like getting a PhD in songwriting, you know, because uh, back when I was a kid, no one could teach you how to write songs. There were no schools for songwriting or, or singing. Or, you see what I'm saying? So the closest you could get to an education was to take the Beatles songs and then uh, teach yourself how to play them. Well, although they didn't do much, if any, writing together for the White Album, you know, mm -hmm. by, by this stage of their relationship, Lennon and McCartney kind of did their own thing and, and they'd bring the songs to the band. Uh, but when they did truly collaborate, I mean, we all know it was magic, like Bacharach and David Goffin and King uh, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, go through your your favorite composers. Uh, you've written with uh, the great Barry Mann. Mm -hmm. um, John, I want to make sure I've got, is it John Sheard? Um, among others. What, what I want to ask you is, what constitutes a great songwriting partnership? Well, you know, uh, one way of looking at it is that... Uh, you know, the, the the two writers kind of go to their own respective strengths. So back when I first wrote with Barry Mann, in, when I was 22, uh, you know, the, the, clearly my I was more advanced as a lyricist than, than, than as a, a composer of music. I, I My first two albums I'd written all by myself, and they'd done quite well around the world. But... I, I was I was advised you know by the president of my music publishing company that Barry Mann wrote better music pretty much than, than anyone in the world you know and so he was a guy who was a master of melody and chord structure and I was a very very advanced word guy so because he was so advanced in music and myself in lyrics sometimes when we touched was the first song we wrote he, and he actually uh, before he wrote with me he studied my my earlier hit songs. And, and, and by, by studying my songs, he figured out the perfect vocal range for me. You ask me if I love you And I choke on my reply I'd rather hurt you honestly Than mislead you with a lie And who am I to judge you? So not only did he come up with the perfect music, but he'd already done his homework on my singing and wrote music that would bring out all the best qualities in my voice. Now, Dan, did, so you were a lyric guy back then. Well, I did both. You know, I, I, I wrote all the words and music to my first two albums, but it seemed evident that I was more advanced as a lyricist than, than a composer of music at that time. So when you're sitting down back then or now, um, are you a music guy first or lyric guy first? Well, now I've been very lucky because the other person who taught me a lot about writing music was Michael Massa, who wrote probably more... And it more produced and wrote more hit songs for black arts, R and B artists than anybody in, in the eighties. So, we wrote a song called "In Your Eyes" that was a big, big worldwide hit for George Benson and Jeffrey Osborne. Uh, so I learned so much from both Barry Mann and Michael Master because I would just watch them on the piano. I would watch what they were doing. That then I took all that experience of sitting next to them and putting in thousands and thousands of hours of writing with them and then was able to come up and write my own melodies, the biggest examples being, say, Can't We Try and Never Thought, which actually stayed on the charts even longer than sometimes when we touched. But there's no way I could have written those songs by myself had I not had the education of working with Barry Mann and Michael Masser. Next track of the uh, 11 that you want to talk about, uh, George Harrison's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Gently weeps 
Well, this is very interesting on a lot of levels. I would have to say that it's the best song Harrison wrote. Now, let's keep in mind, my favorite George Harrison songs would be While My Guitar Gently Weeps, uh, My Sweet Lord, and, uh, and something. But remember, My Sweet Lord, he, he, I think it was unconscious, he lifted all the chords and the music from He's So Fine by the Chiffons, right? And he actually had to pay $750,000 in damages. Uh, so that, in, in a way, takes away from the power of My Sweet Lord, given that the music was kind of borrowed by the Chiffons. And then with something, something in the way she moves, is exactly the same opening line as James Taylor's Something in the Way She Moves. And you probably remember that James Taylor was signed to the Beatles label, Apple, when he was only 17. So he came out with Something in the Way She Moves. Then, not coincidentally, in my opinion, two years later, Harrison comes up with the, with the same title starting the song, so the one song that I give to Harrison where there is no uh, possible uh, copying would have to be my, you know, would have to be While My Guitar Gently Weaves. So that's my favorite Harrison song. It's the equal of all the great songs that McCartney and Lennon wrote, although he was never as prolific as Lennon McCartney and, and felt very, very aggrieved being under the weight of the greatest collaborators of all time. He, when he did write a great song, you know, he, he delivered. So that, and what an image, while my guitar gently weeps. I mean, boy, just that that title alone conjures up so much emotion. Well, it was uh, it was inspired by the I Ching and featured his friend Eric Clapton on lead guitar. Uh, he started writing the music for the song in India, although the lyrics were mostly completed upon his return to England. <clears throat> to your point, Dan, of the recording of it, he says, we tried to record it, but John and Paul were so used to just cranking out their tunes that it was very difficult at times to get serious and record one of mine. It just wasn't happening. They weren't taking it seriously, and I don't think they were even all playing on it. And so I went home that night thinking, well, that's a shame, because I knew the song was pretty good. The next day, I was driving into London with Eric Clapton, and I said, hey, what are you doing today? Why don't you come to the studio and play on this song for me? And he said, oh, no, I can't do that. Nobody's ever played in a Beatles record, and the others wouldn't like it. I said, look, it's my song. I'd like you to come and play on it. So he came in. I said, Eric's going to play on this one. And it was good because that then made everyone act better. Paul got on the piano, played a nice intro, and they all took it more seriously. Great story. And the other thing that that reminds me of this story, Paul, is that uh, there was a, it, there, the greatest tension was with uh, McCartney and Harrison because, as you already mentioned, McCartney was the real perfectionist. Lennon was not the perfectionist. That's one of the things that made them great is they were so different in terms of not only their musicality but their but their interests. And um, so uh, they were thinking at, at one point that Harrison was going to quit. Because not only was he getting fed up because all, all the Lennon McCartney songs were always being being used, whereas his songs were often being overlooked, but he got tired of McCartney always telling him how to play. You know, and um, and they the, Lennon and McCartney had a discussion about then hiring Eric Clapton. So in the event that Harrison bolted from the band, they had already figured out that they would go to Clapton to be the substitute. Which I don't know. I don't believe Harrison happened to be aware of that. Now, in the eyes of many, and you know, I think you would be one of them, and I, and I would join you. This is George Harrison's signature song. Fair to say, you know, I, I think most people for for most people, yours would be your. And I I, I don't know which word to use here so uh ginormous herculean prodigious giant colossal mammoth song <laughs> sometimes when we touch uh, first released uh in uh, october of 1977 subsequently re released and a hit around the world it was huge it changed your life i'm so i'm understatement of the afternoon sometimes when we touch the honesty is too and I have to close my eyes and hide. I want to hold you till I die Till we both break down and cry I want to hold you till the fear in me subsides Here's what I want to ask you about, Dan. Uh, you wrote a piece in 2010. You said, the year was 1974, 
And all I was trying to do by writing my earnest little song was get the girl. I've long ago grown more than a little weary of my signature hit. Its lyrics now about as relevant to me as the poem or diary entry of a teenager might have scrawled out in high school. Uh, and its refusal to go gently into that good night. Now, you said that in 2010. It's been a number of years since then. Have you and your amazing song become more comfortable bedfellows now? Well, I think getting older, you become more accepting of, of what, what you've done in the past and not quite as self-critical. I think we all in our, in our private moments can be very, very self-critical, you know, and um, that song actually is even bigger now than it was when I made that quote. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, it, it, a lot of interesting things have happened to that song since 2010 to now. I mean, it's like one of the most played songs of all time. You know, now, uh, say Dolly Parton's favorite song of all time. Uh, it, it's been used in so many movies and, and TV shows that I can't keep track of it. Um, it, it, it is um, the funny thing. I, I'm part of a, a spec docuseries on Prime, and it's actually called Sometimes When We Touch. It, it's called The Rise, the Ruined Resurrection of Soft Rock. And it kind of talks about how soft rock, for lack of a better term, in the long run eclipsed all the, all of the genres of music. So it eclipsed, say, the rock and roll. So for some strange reason, songs such as that song or songs by the Carpenters or the Eagles are even more popular now than they were 50 years ago. So you can never predict how your song is going to roll out over decades. You know, pop music is pop culture. And as you know, pop culture turns over very quickly. So in the case of Sometimes When We Touch, you know, uh, I... What can I say? I think all my biggest songs were songs that I wrote that were very personal songs. I was never intending to write a hit. So I was 19 when I first wrote it. And yeah, this woman was breaking my heart. <laughs> but I, well, I want to circle back, sorry about to the Beatles. Okay, when McCartney wrote Yesterday, which I'm sure you know he wrote in his dreams. Yes. And at first, his first words were scrambled eggs. Uh, the, one of the first things he did is he phoned the woman that he was seeing because they had accused him of being flippant and not deep enough to be in a serious relationship. And he played that song over the phone as proof that he had real, real deep feelings. He says, how can I be, you know, n you know, callow and immature and superficial if I can write this song about you? So even that song, in a sense, was a response to a woman saying he wasn't deep enough for her. And well, and, and it's a it's a famous story, dear listener. If you haven't heard it, I mean, the the, the quick version of the story. And, and Dan, jump in at any time because it's your story. But there was a girl who you were crazy about, and you were you as a young man would. You wrote the song to try to win her. Yeah, because I was a nineteen and I was working for the civil service for a dollar eighty nine an hour, and uh, <laughs> I obviously I was a high school dropout. Uh, and so, obviously, if she was looking at me objectively and comparing me to the uh, CFL fullback that she was going out with, this guy had a lot more going for him. So I couldn't, I couldn't compete with all these older, more successful men. Um, and one other quote uh, about that song, uh, which I, it made me laugh out loud. Uh, it was a, an online piece, I believe, in the CBC. <laughs> and you said, I would walk into a restaurant and a woman at a table would say, I love you. And her husband would say, I hate your music. I was just trying to have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, um, I have this, you know, when you decide to be who I ended up being, you have to be... Um, you have to understand that this kind of stuff comes with the territory. If you if you decide you want to be a so-called uh, singer-songwriter, famous singer-songwriter, you can't just take the good and ignore the bad. You know, so part of the bad is, especially a song that sometimes we touch, which is so hyper emotional and very very unusual for a man to sing the kind of lyrics that sometimes, and also very unusual to sing in that kind of breathy vocal. You know, what happens is it was the most loved song by some people and the most hated by others. So it's true, though, on a f human fundamental level, sometimes, you know, you would feel the same way. You know, you want to go into a restaurant and just, you know, kind of take a break from all the pressures of your life and, and kind of treat yourself. So I was unable to do that. I was always getting people telling me what they thought of me. So did being out there like that push you towards wanting to be more of a song writer for others than a song performer. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, just, yeah, I was getting so tired by the time I think it was maybe 27, you know, 
that I thought, you know, it's maybe time for me to start writing for other people. Because then when I uh, say, uh, I don't know, George Benson and Jeffrey Osmond cut in your eyes, they were the ones running all over the world, you know, doing 300 shows a year. I wasn't doing anything yet, sitting, sitting back and drinking margaritas. So <laughs> it was a bit, much easier way to make a living and every bit as profitable, if not more so. Uh, well, very fittingly, talking about your schedule and how hard you worked, the next song you want to talk about, the fourth one, is I'm So Tired. I'm so tired I haven't slept a wink I'm so tired My mind is on the blink I wonder should I get up And fix myself a drink No, no, no I was listening to that song last night and I was thinking, oh my God, talk about an understatement. What they must have been going through in terms of the enormous pressure, because not only was it the pressure of being by far the biggest and best band in the world, A, B, um, you know, it was like, you know, the media in England with the Fleet Street, you know, is even more oppressive than it is in North America. So imagine just being in the news all the time, people just saying anything they wanted about you. Uh, and when he's singing I'm So Tired, you could hear it in his voice. You know, he, you believed every word he was saying. It was almost like an understatement. You know, uh, I think he said something like, fix myself a drink. But the way he's singing it, even the sheer act of getting up and fixing himself a drink was almost overwhelming because the poor guy was absolutely fried. So what I love is the, you know, it, it gives you a window into what they must have been going through at that time, given the pressures that were exacted upon them. Uh, John Lennon, in an interview with David Sheff many years later, said, I'm so tired was me in India again. I couldn't sleep. I'm meditating all day and couldn't sleep at night. The story is that. One of my favorite tracks. I just like the sound of it, and I sing it well. That's an understatement. Yeah. Um, again, the uh, chord structures that they used were... Very, very unusual and very unpredictable. And uh, and also, a lot of these records were very underproduced. Now, nowadays, there's a wall of sound around records. This, I'm not criticizing them. And also, you know, the vocals are, you know, auto-tune auto, auto -tune corrected, right? Uh, well, that wasn't happening back then. So what was interesting about some of these records is just how minimal the instrumentation was, but we never listened to the record saying, how come there aren't more drums? Or why are there no drums? They, they sounded so full, even though they were so minimalistic. The White Album has a really... I mean, even though they've recorded all their stuff at EMI, now Abbey Road Studios, it has a real almost lo-fi sound to me mm -hmm. on some of the songs like this one does it sound that like that well, to you yeah lo-fi is a really good way of putting it paul the other thing is that they were never ever slick they were the opposite of slick you know uh you know they were raw i mean a lot of times you could really hear the influences of, of jerry lee lewis um uh, little richard chuck berry you could hear those influences you know which again when you think about those original, you know, uh, creators of, of rock and roll music, those guys were not slick, right? And so they were never slick. And at very, in some songs really, really showed off the raw blues American influence that they had when they fell in love with American music as kids. You know, I jotted down a question and I'm glad you opened that door. I, began, I wanted to get it in because I, I thought it was relevant, but I didn't know if it would fit our conversation. Uh, but when you look at I, I, did it resonate with you when you were a young man, the number of black singers that the Beatles uh, obviously, I mean, they covered the Shirelles, Baby It's You, the Isley Brothers, Twist and Show, Little Richard, Long Tall Sally, the Marvelettes, Please Mr. Postman. I mean, they, they particularly loved their black girl groups. Yeah, well, Lennon, I mean, I'm sorry, Jerry Harrison had an affair with uh, that great singer, um, Gosh, who, who was on uh, Ronnie Spector, right? Who, by the way, I worked with. Uh, that's an, I won't go there, but she was amazing to work with. Yeah, so not only did they love those girl groups, but they would have them open up their shows. 
you know, Tina Turner opened up their shows, or I can Tina Turner, Ronnie Spector. And again, it was a very kind of illicit love affair between uh, Harrison and Ronnie Spector. Even back then, of course, remember, there was that big color divide. So you weren't supposed to, uh, a black person or a mixed race person was not supposed to go out with a white person. Yeah, they, they loved their, their girl groups, the American girl groups, and the, the, it informed their writing, and they covered them, and they had these girl groups open up their shows. Did that strike you at the time when you were a young man, or is that something you kind of zeroed in on when you got older? Well, I realized because of, again, my dad's, as a black man from America, the only music he ever liked was black music, you know. So I, I picked off a lot of those, those uh, the black music, uh, you know, influences because that was where I was steeped in. No, no, my dad did not listen to Little Richard or, or groups like that, but still, you know, even some of those really, really gutsy Ray Charles songs, were, you know, were, were songs that, you know, had amazing influence on every modern group that came after that, including the Beatles. Uh, Paul McCartney's memory of the song, I'm So Tired, is very much John's comment to the world. And it had that very special line, and curse Sir Walter Raleigh, he was such a stupid get. That's a classic line, and it's so John that there's no doubt that he wrote it. I think it's 100% John. Being tired was one of his themes. He also wrote, I'm only sleeping. I think we were all pretty tired, but he chose to write about it. And uh, another thing that made them so great as solo writers and as collaborators is usually Lennon went to the darkness and McCartney went to the light. For example, We Can Work It Out. And it was the contrast of that one going to the darkness, one going to the light that uh, came out in such brilliant uh, collaborations. One other uh, songwriting duo that was very much like that was is uh, Randy Bachman, Burton Cummings. You know, uh, Randy Bachman more like McCartney going to the light. Burton Cummings more. You know, remember Randy Bachman was and is a, a Mormon. Okay, whereas Burton Cummings was anything but. And again, they were opposites in, in kind of the same way that Lennon and McCartney were. Uh, the other classic one, uh, I mean, there are many, but getting better from Sgt. Pepper. Mm-hmm. You know, McCartney, getting better all the time. Of course. And Lennon... Uh, can't get much can't worse. Can't get much, exactly. <laughs> you like, got it. You nailed it, Paul. <laughs> um, next song you wanted to talk about, and it comes right after I'm So Tired on the album, is... Uh, it's pure McCartney. McCartney's the only uh, only Beatle in the song, Blackbird. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You were only waiting for this moment to arrive. That is probably the ultimate guitar lesson. It's, those, those chords are very, very hard to play. They are not at all typical chords. You're not going to CFG B flat. I mean, you can't even look at a chord chart to figure out what he's doing because it's anybody that considers themselves a really, really good guitar player when that song came out had to be able to play Blackbird. If you could not play Blackbird, you, you could not consider yourself a good guitar player. I remember how hard I worked. To uh, to learn that guitar part, I think it took me a week. And um, the, again, keep in mind that record is just guitar and voice, nothing else. But no one I've ever talked to ever said, "Why aren't the drums in this song?" Also, um, it's almost like biblical the wisdom that that McCartney imparts in the words. Uh, but uh, you know, my biggest memory of that song was was playing it over and over and teaching myself how to play it on the guitar. And you had to have amazing elasticity in your left hand to make some of those chord charts, chord changes. The piano, in in some ways, is easier because everything is laid out in front of you. So any kind of strange chord configurations or altered bass lines, you can do. But on the guitar, you only have six strings, so you, your fingers have to go through these ridiculous contortions to make those changes. So. That was the number one rock and roll song of all time to to uh, teach you how to be the best guitar player you can be. Uh, only three sounds were recorded. McCartney's voice, his Martin D28 acoustic, uh, and the tapping uh, <sighs> that are his, it, it is his left and right foot. There's oh, video footage of this. I see. Tapping the beat. Right. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you can, uh, you can, there is footage of this. It's in the Beatles anthology where you see him and you see his feet go. Not just one foot, it's 
left, yeah. right, wow. left, right. And the other thing that's starting to happen, as, as you already know, is that at the beginning, everything Lennon and McCarthy did was was together. And now they're getting to a point where they're writing songs separately, although they they had that agreement that they would all get you know equal credit on each song. So this was showing again how they were going in different directions and writing songs on their own. Uh, it's it, it's one of those songs that's kind of ch- changed meanings over the years. Uh, since since it was composed in 1968, McCartney himself has given various. Uh, I won't say contradicting because it's his song and he can say whatever he wants, but a, a, an interview that he did in, in uh, 1968 when the album came out, he was talking about the song and he said, well, it's simple in concept because you couldn't think of anything else to put on it. And that's what I was saying about the Sgt. Pepper thing. Maybe on Pepper, we would have sort of worked it out until we could find some way to put in violins or trumpets in there. But I don't think that this song needs it. This one, you know, it's just, there's nothing to the song. It's just one of those go Go in, pick it, and sing it, and that's it. So that's that's how we talked about the song then. But over the years, uh, it's taken on a luster, and, and he has talked about it being inspired by the U.S. civil rights movement. Uh, and uh, Black Bird... Mm-hmm. Interpreted right. as a bird is a British slang for mm-hmm. for girl, uh, so black bird, I black see. girl, fly, uh, and it's so it's it's kind. Of, and I've heard him tell this in interviews, tell this story about it uh, that it it was inspired by the U.S. civil rights movement, which of course was taking place around this time. And it uh, also shows you know McCartney's left wing leanings because remember back uh, get back was uh, making fun of the you know the British government and a lot of the public freaking out about him. Immigration. Yep. You know, we, we think that that's an issue now with a lot of you know, xenophobic countries, but, you know, uh, he was very, very aware politically of what was going on. He would write these songs that would embrace that, but he'd do it in cryptic ways. So we didn't really know until, say, he would do an interview and reveal that. So that's very telling about Blackbird. Yeah, McCartney played Blackbird telling Donovan that he wrote it after having read something, a quote, read something in the paper about the riots, and then he met the Blackbird to symbolize a black woman. Uh, So here's a song that's taken on a definite social justice tone uh, that, you know, may or may not have been intended when he originally wrote it, but that's the way it's perceived now. Uh, Unlike a track from your newest record, 2021's On the Other Side, where you address directly the George Floyd murder by police in Minneapolis in 2020. What about black lives? What about black lives? What about black lives? Tired of being brutalized, the victim of white lies. What about black lives? Single knee to the neck, body slammed to the ground. Couldn't take a single breath. White policemen kneeling down I can't breathe Was this final sound question to you is do you think that you're addressing u.s social issues in some of your songs came as a result of your mom and dad's social activism yes absolutely my dad was the first uh uh, director of the ontario human rights commission which was the first commission provincial commission of its kind all through canada to to then go after uh, people that wouldn't uh, give employers who would not hire black black people or jewish people or uh, elite country, uh, country clubs that, like uh, you know, the Granite Club, that at that time were not allowing blacks or Jews to become members. So, yeah, I mean, the issue of, of social justice and, and racism was was one of the the number one topics in our family. My grandfather 
my dad's father taught uh, theology at, at uh, Harvard University. We'd also have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak at his school. So they were actually very close because they were both ministers, right? So, yeah, there's no way I would... You know, I've, I've written a lot of songs connected to the, the theme of, of you know black empowerment, racism, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason, what about black lives seem to get the most attention. So... Um, what I try to do when I write these kind of songs is to do it in a way where people aren't feeling like I'm lecturing them uh, and sounding you know, like a know-it-all or their teacher. So that's why I intentionally started with the question, what about black lives? It was like I was trying to show that I was as as concerned and lost and you know about what to do as everybody else. And I find if I start with a question in the chorus, it, it brings in people. For example, Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On? Okay, that's the ultimate question song, right? So I learned from people like Marvin Gaye, uh, you know, even Can't We Try? You know, it's a question, you know? So one of the things I was trying to do was to process this George Floyd situation, how this has always been going on, but in a way that was hopefully more um, enveloping of the listener. Uh, I'm one of those guys, I'm a typical 50s male, you know, men from my generation do not talk about our feelings. So the great thing about writing songs for me or books is that then I can really talk about this kind of stuff in my work. So generally speaking, I do not, not like talking about these issues. You know, uh, you know, I prefer not to talk about racism, religion, sex, politics. I leave that for my writing. So when I wrote the song, I didn't think it people would would resonate. It would resonate with people, but I was surprised that it did. I love your, uh, which I never thought about before, but I, I love your thing about starting it with a question to bring the listener in, and and even the example you gave, uh, like those those two albums. There's the famous one, right? I mean, Marvin Gaye puts out an album called "What's Going On." Later that year. Sly and the Family Stone put out an album called There's a Riot Going On. Right. That was like, what's going on? There's a riot going on. Yeah, and remember Lifehood in 1968 released Black Day in July, which most radio stations refused to play. Yep, yep. I I can't imagine the the dinner table conversations you must have had with with two parents who were social activists. And then I know they were both writers or uh, your grandfather was a writer. Your late sister was a writer. Your brother's a writer. You're a writer. I'm thinking there weren't a lot of light conversations (laughs) at the dinner table. Well, the one thing that we learned, all of us, all the children, was how important it was, uh, how important communication was, how important words were. And uh, when we wanted something, we had to write a letter. So if I wanted to have a kid or my brother, we'd have to write a letter to my, our parents at the age of three explaining with concise logic what our responsibilities would be if we had a cat. Or if I wanted to grow my hair like the Beatles, I had to write a letter. So the, the whole, the whole you know, being able to write was probably one of the number one lessons in, in my household. And that's, you know, I mean, psychologists have talked about this, but that clearly formed the lens through which you've seen the world the rest of your life and and as a result that lens is very much evident in your songwriting i would say well yeah i try to do it in in you know in ways that are well some you know sometimes they're they're they're, they're rather subtle or so i like to just sort of tell stories and in the stories i'm not really making any kind of judgments i'm just telling the story and allowing the listener to figure to make their own so when i wrote about my parents marriage you know, and call it McCarthy's Day after the the lunatic, uh, communist, paranoid you know, uh, McCarthy. You know, I was trying very much just to tell the story of my parents' life as opposed to you know knocking people over the head with my views of racism. So we go from a heavy topic uh, and a song that McCartney wrote that uh, certainly represents a heavy topic to a pretty whimsical song, Rocky Raccoon. Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota There lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon And one day his woman ran off with another guy Hit young Rocky in the eye Rocky didn't like that He said, I'm gonna get that boy well, you know, again, that was a song I remember learning on the guitar, you know, because remember, again, as we said earlier, uh, you know, um, music books, you know, were very, very popular back then. Often you sold more sheet music than you did the actual singles. One of the things that's really interesting about that song is it just shows what extraordinary imagination. I kind of think, I'm not sure you would probably know. I think this is a McCartney song. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I liked was it was almost like he, he let his brain go into this 
weird kind of free association way because the story unfolds Stories are such an important part of great songwriting, right? And there's a real story to Rocky Raccoon. And again, you were whimsical, kind of sums it up perfectly. It was just really interesting how he just, I kind of feel like he let his unconscious brain just lead him through these various, <laughs> various, you know, uh, avenues that just kind of fell out of his imagination. He probably wrote it very quickly. I loved the story, you know, uh, and uh, I loved. Oh, yeah, and he also kind of starts singing in this kind of Americana voice, right? Uh, so it shows you what a phenomenal ear. Suddenly he sounds like an American from the South. So he was kind of talking about the... He had a voice that sounded like someone that came out of the mountain, the Appalachian Mountains. How did he do that? How could he... How could he do? I haven't heard him do that in any of the songs. He was just sounding like a like a regular Southern cracker. Somewhere in the black yeah, man hills of Dakota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it was a phenomenal song on so many levels. But I think most of all, I love the free association of how his mind just went wherever it went, and and then just put together this very interesting story, which was totally absurd on one level, but it's almost like something Dr. Seuss would have written as a children's book. He, uh, he recalled it years later uh, in uh, the book with Barry Miles many years from now. Rocky Raccoon is quirky, very me. Uh, I like talking blues, so I started off like that, and then I did my tongue-in-cheek parody of a Western and threw in some amusing lines. I just tried to keep it uh, amusing, really. Uh, it's me writing a play, a little one-act play, giving them most of the dialogue. Rocky Raccoon is the main character. Then there's the girl whose name is McGill, who called herself Lil, but everyone knew her as Nancy. Very much like other character songs, Lovely Rita, Obla Di Obla Da, Maxwell Silverhammer, and so on. Mm -hmm. he, he loved those. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it really shows that they were they were equal. I, you know, at, at, for a while there after the, uh, the group you know, disbanded, uh, you know, a lot of the so-called critics were claiming that Lennon was the superior talent, but that's absolutely not true. They were both unusually uh, gifted uh, in equally but different, you know, and McCartney shows that over and over and over again with songs like that, Rock Raccoon or songs like Blackbird, you know. And your songwriter's ear is, is right on. The song was recorded and completed really quickly. Um, but McCartney, according to Mark Lewison in the Complete Beatles recording sessions, he was very uncertain of the lyrics. Uh, and uh, he so he had to take a couple of different runs at it. The funniest one, which is on the session tape, uh, <laughs> he says, uh, move over, Doc. Let's have none of your cock. <laughs> And That's that, funny. And that one didn't make the song. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, as Paul uh, himself said later between takes, I don't quite know the words to that verse yet. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up working it out. Now, it's a bit of a country feel to it, or, or the yeah. start, would you yeah. say? Um, and I know that you have worked with many country artists, uh, country chart number ones for Sammy Kershaw, Mark Wills. Um, is writing a country song any different from writing a pop song? Yes and no. The one of the, one of the reasons I've been lucky enough to do well writing hits for the American country artists uh, is because the story element is so important. You know, that's one of the great things about country songwriting is there's always a very very strong story. You know that which is not always the case in the terms of uh, rock and roll music. Uh, so, you know, I didn't really find it to be. There are some adjustments you have to make. You can't be too sophisticated uh, lyrically the way you can sometimes with pop music. Um, and usually country male singers don't have as, as, as wide a vocal range as, say, someone like Brian Adams or, or, or Sting or, say, Celine Dion. So the melodies have to be less expansive in order to get people like, say, Alan Jackson to, to cut one of your songs. I've always wondered, Dan, and, and you're the guy to ask, uh, when you're doing demos for other artists, uh, I think of a demo as, okay, I'll, I'm, I'm going to date myself here. I'll just click my cassette player on. Now it would be your phone. Phone, and I'm going to you know, just roughly sure. strum out, block out the chords, and I'll sing a lyric. Uh, is, is that the way it's still done, or do big artists expect you to essentially give them something that's been produced and, it, it, for all intents, is a finished song? Well, usually you have to give them something that's produced. Essentially what happened is when I started, uh, when I took a break from being the, the performer, so-called entertainer, 
and becoming the songwriter for, for the so-called stars, I was still making records. I was still going through the same recording process. The only difference was these records were not coming out to the public. They were going to people like, say, Britney Spears or Celine Dion or, or Michael Bolton. So yeah, all the songs I was writing and, and sending to these other artists, I was producing. And also it shows them the roadmap as to how to produce the songs. They're listening to the, your, your, your recording and then they're copying everything, which you want to do. You want them to produce it the right way unless, or else it won't be a hit. All right. Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, let's take a break here and we will call it end of side one. Uh, time well spent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, we will be back with more of Dan Hill talking about the White Album in the next episode. And again, look for all things Dan Hill at his website, danhill.com. You will find up-to-date information about where he's playing and also on a book that he has coming out in the fall of 2023 called The Healing, Confessions of a Biracial Songwriter. So check for that. His website is the place to go. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please do consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Uh, any little bit helps. Uh, I get it. Most people don't dig into their pockets and support every podcast they listen to. Uh, hand up from me as a, a guilty party. I don't donate to every podcast I listen to. But I've got a, a great and loyal listenership that I have built up over the years doing this podcast. And uh, really, if you can help me offset some of my costs, greatly appreciate it. If you enjoy the podcast, please do support it if you can afford it. Just go to the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. You can follow the podcast on all the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. And over on Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do it on social media or you can go old school and send me an email at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the dot romicast at gmail.com positive reviews and shares on your social channels also help out i'm paul romanak a pleasure as always so long for now do you ever get tired of being